Bow with me for prayer, please. Our Father and God, we are gathered as your people once again, as we are accustomed to doing, to hear from you. We know, Lord, that you are the giver of every good gift. Your word reminds us that all good gifts comes down from the Father of lights, and uh, you give us all things that are good, but we find ourselves in situations and circumstances where we look around us and we often yearn for that which is better. And again, Lord, you do not fail to address that issue of not only having what is good, but desiring what is better. And so this evening, Lord, as we look into your word, we pray, Lord, that you would guide our thoughts and our deliberations. I come to you, Lord, in utter dependence upon you uh, to move, direct, guide, and most of all, to grant me the enabling to do uh, what your bidding is. I ask, O oh Lord, that you would cause each of us uh, to be receptive to what you will say to us, not just collectively in this collective setting, but individually in the privacy of our own hearts. For we know, Lord, that your word never returns to you void, and what you say is not always intended uh, for a collective audience, but most specifically uh, to impact us and to encourage us, strengthen us, and even to convict us personally. And so, Lord, we look to you today and we ask, O oh Father, that you would uh, be glorified in all that is said and that your name would indeed uh, be exalted at the end of the day. These things we ask in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Uh, we know that uh, hardly any of, any of us go through a particular day without seeing things and going through experiences. And even though we are aware that we have what is good, we are often tempted by what we see, what we hear, and what we experience to yearn for that which is better. Today we're going to look at what uh, the wisest man who ever lived, Solomon, had to say because he had a similar experience in his life and, uh, and it's believed that he wrote Ecclesiastes after he had gone through his entire life and he had made, even though he was the wisest man who ever lived, he made some foolish mistakes. Uh, he wasn't foolish, but he did some foolish things. And, uh, and so he penned some words that would give us some insight into how we can avoid some of the mistakes that he made in his own life. And in a brief chapter, chapter 7, he talks about some things that are good and some things that are even better. Uh, and so Ecclesiastes chapter 6 ends with a kind of a bitter note uh, that human beings can't determine what is best for them under the sun. They don't know what's good for them under the sun is how chapter 6 concludes. And so, as the wisest man who ever lived, it makes a lot of sense then for us to take note of what he had to say in the next chapter about what is good and what is better. Now, we find this combination of words, good and better, occur together many times here in Ecclesiastes 7, and we don't see these words occurring like this in any other chapter in the Old Testament. So it's a combination. He uses these words in combination in terms of a comparison. Well, here's what is good, but let me show you what is better. And that's how he wants us to, to get what he is saying. Now, in the first six verses of chapter 7, he deals with a couple of issues. He deals with the benefit of a good name, and we know how important a good name is. But he also deals with the benefit of light, of death over life. And that's something that would kind of cause some people to be perplexed. And then he talks about, uh, the benefit of sorrow over worthless delight or amusement or fun or jollity, as some people would call it. But he begins by talking about the benefit of a good name. And so he says, a good name is better than good ointment. A good name is better than good ointment. Now, a good name is also an indication of a good reputation. 
And uh, many people go to extremes and go to great pains to ensure that their name is not tarnished. And some people would say when a person's uh, name is messed up, they would say something like, your name is mud. Okay, it means that your reputation is short. It also speaks of a good character. It speaks of character. A name uh, also typifies the kind of character that a person has. I, I, I deal with a, 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 an uh, AC contractor uh, in, our, in the business that I'm in, and uh, whenever I call him to look at a problem, to deal with a problem, uh, he is very concerned that it was not a problem that we had before, because he said his name is more important to him than anything else. He said he would prefer to get it right the first time than to come back over and over and have to fix the same thing. Now, we had to change this guy because the first guy we had, uh, whenever he found a problem, he would uh, throw parts at it and throw this at it and throw Oh, that doesn't work, get a new system. And uh, the last straw was when he, he had a system and uh, we called him in and he says, oh, you need a new system. So we called this other guy and he came in and he troubled shoot, shoot the problem. And he was able to rip that thing apart, put it together again, found out what the problem is, turns out we didn't need a new system. Well, that first guy, he doesn't have a good name with us anymore, okay? The new guy has a good name, and he says all the time, he says, my name is more important to me than anything else. And that's the same thing that uh, Solomon is saying here. See, in biblical times now, perfume ointment was, was, was very, very valuable. We get a, an idea of that in the story of Mary when she anointed Jesus with that expensive perfume. Well, this is the same kind of... Uh, uh, perfumed ointment that he's talking about that he's referring to here that he has in mind here and it was often treated as accumulated earnings like a life savings and it was kept for those really rainy rainy days when things get tough and so the thought here is that the inherent character of an upright life cannot be replaced even by the most expensive possession no matter how valuable anything is it cannot place, replace a good name. And so the question that we all need to consider in our lives today is, do you have a good name? Do you have a good name? Do you, have you had an experience with someone that has tarnished your name, that has messed up your reputation and affected your character? And so he wants us to think about that. But then also, having stated what is good, he continues by stating what is better. And uh, he says something that's going to leave... A lot of people scratching their heads. A lot of people read this and they scratch it. What is he talking about? What does he mean by that? He says, and the day you die is better than the day you were born. The day you die is better than the day you were born. After one of his elderly members had passed away, a pastor received an interesting request regarding her funeral arrangement. Uh, she said, uh, well, this woman never married. And so she requested uh, that she had no male pallbearers at her funeral. No men carrying a casket. And she gave the reason in her handwritten instructions, which read, they wouldn't take me out while I was alive. I don't want them to take me out when I'm dead. Now, I would say that she probably got the last laugh. And for, 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 probably for her, the day she died was probably better than the day she was born. Because she certainly got the last laugh. I don't know why they did it, but they did it. But at, uh, she certainly got the last laugh. What Solomon means by this, what does he mean by this statement though? What does he mean when he says the day that you die is better than the day you were born? Was it a, a general truism? Or was this just another reference to the person with a good name? What is he talking about? What does he mean? Well, we see two observations here. The first is, it is a positive observation when applied to genuine believers. People who are really saved. People who are born again. Who have had a genuine experience of salvation with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first observation. For those kind of people, it's better the day they die than the day we were born. In a Isaiah chapter 26, we read, But those who die in the Lord will live. Their bodies will rise again. Those who sleep in the earth will rise up and sing for joy. 
more joy than we've been singing about this evening. You ain't seen no joy yet. For your life-giving spirit will fill like dew, will fall like dew on your people in the place of the dead. And then, of course, that familiar passage of scripture that we often hear when a loved one passes away. The Lord cares deeply when his loved ones dies, or blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. But the second observation we see is a negative observation, especially when it's applied to people who die with unconfessed or unforgiven sins. So we get two observations, a positive, for those who know the Lord, and a negative. And uh, Ezekiel says, for all people are mine to judge, both parents and children alike. And this is my rule. The person who sins is the one who will die. Verse 21 says, But if wicked people turn away from all their sins and begin to obey my decrees and do what is just and right, they will surely live and not die. And so here again we see these two observations regarding why he makes that statement. Why is it good the day you were born, the day you died, and the day you were born? But then he goes on uh, with another observation of what is better that is even more puzzling to some people. And he's talking about the benefit of sorrow over worthless delight or amusement. Better to spend your time at funerals than at parties. You agree with that? That's kind of puzzling, right? Funerals are a sad occasion. Uh, it's a time of mourning, it's a time of grieving, you've, you've lost a loved one, you're not going to see them again. All those memories that you have, that person come flooding back, and it causes you to grieve and to mourn. And then it goes on, he says, after all, everyone dies, which is true. So the living should take this to heart. Take to heart what he's saying. He determines that a funeral would be a better place to be than feasting at a banquet. Now those people who like to eat a lot will disagree with that, wholeheartedly. Okay, but this is what he says. When confronted with the reality that everyone dies, we are forced to think about our own exit from the land of the living. At some particular point in our lives, we have to come to terms with the fact that we're not going to be here forever. Okay? Unless the Lord comes, we're going to go the way of those who went before us. Every living soul must come to terms with the fact of death. Not a fallacy, it's a fact. By having a philosophy of life that enables them to face the inevitable appointment. It's inevitable, it's pending, it will come. The inevitable appointment with greatest confidence. And many times you've heard stories of people who die with smiles on their faces. That's probably an indication of a person who faced life with great confidence because they know where they're going. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. They have no doubts about what's going to happen to me when I die. But note the, the writer of Hebrews says that what he says about, about Jesus, so what Jesus had to, how Jesus had to become human so that he could die and rise again in order to destroy the devil's power over death and deliver us from lifelong bondage. Notice what he says in Hebrews chapter 2. Because God's children are human beings, made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die. And only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. And there are many people today who are living as slaves to the fear of dying. They don't want to die because they don't know what the song says. I don't want to die because I don't know what's up there. There are many people who have that thought lingering in their minds today. But then he goes on. And he says, sorrow, verse 3, sorrow is better than laughter, for sadness has a refining influence. So he's elaborating more on what he just said about dying and death. 
He, he, he was convinced much more is accomplished by the seriousness of sorrow than by the laughter of cheerfulness. And it's something that we agree with when we think about it. The mind is so sharpened by sorrow that it is able to come to grips with the great issues of life. The sorrow has a tendency to do that. When we are grieving, we have a tendency to think more seriously about life because we have witnessed a person whose life has just ended. And so it sort of snaps us into the reality that, you know, one day this life is going to be over. For me too, just like it did was for this person who has gone on. And so it's much more greater, uh, it gives us more capacity to think, to think of the great issues of life, rather than just the lightheartedness, which is actually a waste of time and prevents people from coming to grips with what is really important in this world. And so the fact that joy can coexist with sorrow is one of the great ironies of life that we have to contend with, that we have to deal with. Even though we don't always understand it, we have to confront it, we have to deal with it. Even pagan philosophers have seen the benefit of attributing therapeutic value to suffering and sadness. However, what is only reasonably true for the unsaved is more gloriously true for the redeemed child of God. For the child of God, sorrows and sufferings is God's way of developing graces in the lives of his children. We're able to identify more with the Lord Jesus Christ when we go through sorrows and sufferings. It serves to give believers a new appreciation for the sufferings of Christ. When we go through our own sufferings, we can reflect on what Jesus Christ himself has gone through. Remember when, uh, when Saul was struck down on the road to Damascus and, and God uh, told him to, to go to another brother and he says to, to the brother, he says, listen, I will, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Not how much joy he's going to experience, but how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And so it serves to give believers an appreciation for the sufferings of Christ. But they also enable saints to comfort each other as they experience similar trials in addition to being the pledge of future glory. And Paul talks about this in, in our 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, one of those familiar passages that we are often confronted with because in this life and in our congregation, we often have individuals who are sick and afflicted. And so this verse is always, almost always on the forefront and most of all, mostly on, on our lips just about all the time. He comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort others. Now, do we do that? You see, the comfort that he gives us is not for us to take for ourselves and to relish in it and say, oh yeah, Lord, thank you for, for delivering me, thank you for healing me, thank you for comforting me, and then just forget about it. Notice what he says. He comforts us in all of our troubles, not just some of them, but all of them, so that we can comfort others. In other words, we comfort others from the experience of we ourselves being comforted. In the same way that God has comforted us this year, this, this way we, we learn a lesson from the Lord himself, how he comforts. We use the same way that he comforts us to comfort others. And notice what he goes on to say. When they are troubled, we are able to give them the same comfort God has given to us. So take note of that. The same way God comforts us is the same way he wants us to comfort others when we go through the experience. So you can truthfully say to another brother or believer when they're going through an experience, child, I know what you're going through. Because you've gone through it. God has allowed you to experience that. And so you can truthfully say, sadly now many people say that and it's not true. Because they don't know. They have not experienced. And then in Romans 8, 17, we read, and since we are as children, we are heirs, we are as heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we share, if we are to share his glory, we must also share his sufferings. See, many people want to go through the Christian experience without suffering. That's not what God has promised. 
the promise that we will go through suffering to is, is entitled to, it is, it, is, it, is, it is intended to help us to be able to identify with the sufferings of Christ. And then uh, Solomon goes on in, chapter, in, in verse 4 with another extension on what he is saying about death. He says, a wise person thinks a lot about death, while a fool thinks only about having a good time. A wise person thinks about death. A fool, all they think about is having a good time. They never think about death, and therefore they never plan for it. They never anticipate it. All they're interested in is living it up, partying it up, having a good time. So if you consider yourself wise, then you would be a person who thinks about death. When death is present, the mind of the wise maintains composure and peacefulness, not fear and anxiety. Like those who, are, who don't know the Lord, they're anxious and they, they're fearful because they don't know what's going to happen. They don't know where they're going to go. It's different with the child of God. Once a believer is deeply rooted in Christ, coping with sorrow and pressure is a non-issue not an issue at all, because they know where they are. They know their position in Christ. Fools try to drown out the realities of life with laughter and fun because they can't face any serious crisis. None. And so they try to drown it out. They drink it out. Booze it out. They do all kinds of things to drown out the sorrows and the seriousness of life. You notice that whenever an unsaved person has a problem, what's the first thing they do? Where do they first the place they place their head? To the bar room, to the bottle. Because that's where they find what they need to cope with what they're going through. The believe is not so. Because their superficial wherewithal doesn't equip them to stand up under pressure or the pressures of life. They have a tendency to avoid contact with hospitals and funerals. Because they don't want to come to terms. They don't want to be faced with the reality that death is inevitable. They don't want to have to deal with that. Hospitals and funeral homes remind them of that sort of stuff. So they're going to stay away from those things. Notice when they go to funerals, they go with their bears and they party. You ever notice that? They have these t-shirts on with the person, dead person's face on it. And people talk about how disrespectful some folks are at the funerals. They're supposed to be mourning the death or the passing of a loved one, but they act as if they're just having a great big party. And so some other people go to the extreme of avoiding thoughts of death by denial, reluctance to attend funerals. Some just don't go at all because they just can't handle it. But understand something here now. Solomon is not, this is not Solomon's way of encouraging us to think about death in a gruesome way. He's not encouraging us to have morbid thoughts. Instead, he wants us to realize that it's helpful to think about death and to think about it clearly so that we can be able to explain to others who don't know the Lord why they should come to know the Lord and be able to think about death from a different perspective. And this is helpful for a couple of reasons. First, it's a reminder that we still have time to change. If your life is not going the way it ought to go, well, death reminds us that, you know, you still have time to change things, to make things right, to correct some relationships that have gone bad with individuals who you don't have or you're not on good terms with. And then time to scrutinize the direction our lives are going in. Probably your life is going down a dead-end alley. And so thoughts about death has a tendency to cause you to think about, wait a minute now, let me reevaluate. Let me check my Google Maps, make sure I'm going in the right direction. Make sure I get the directions clearly. And then it's a time to confess our sins and seek God's forgiveness. And God is always ready and willing to forgive. And we need to confess at times. But it makes a lot of sense to plan ahead, to experience God's mercy now rather than his justice and his wrath later on. Because everyone will die eventually. And that's the point that Solomon wants us to get here. Now, when we look at what Solomon says in these first four verses, 
our mind probably goes back and we think that probably, you know, he's contradicting his own advice that he gave previously. Uh, when he talks about, uh, he gives advice about eating and drinking and finding satisfaction in one's work by simply in, enjoying all that God has given. Because it really sounds that way when we read the first four verses of this chapter. And yes, we should enjoy everything we have as long as we can. But with the sober realization that hardships will strike. Hardships are inevitable. They're going to come. Sooner or later, they're going to come. Sooner or later, we're going to have to deal with them. Hardships are constant reminders of how short this life is, this, this, this life is that we live. That we think we have forever. But hardships have a tendency to remind us of how short this life is. It teaches us to live wisely, prudently, as good stewards and wise stewards. Uh, it also refines our character. It has a tendency to make us reconsider the way we are and how we ought to change our lives in order to be uh, the kind of person that, is, that will encourage others instead of being a disappointment. But the value of suffering and sorrow is only embraced by Christianity and Judaism. While the Eastern religions tried to live above it, the Greeks and Romans despised it. They didn't want to have anything to do with it. It was viewed as a refining fire by Christians. And so all through the centuries, Christians have, have, have viewed suffering as a way of God refining us and making us better. And so on the basis of personal experience, many people would have to agree that we learn more about God from hard times than we have from happy times. And all of us can say amen to that because we've been there, done that. We've seen that happen many times in our own lives and as well as the lives of other people. But do you have a tendency to avoid sorrow, suffering at all costs? You know it's going to come eventually and so you do all that you can to try to manipulate your way around it to avoid it. When it comes to sorrow, Suffering. Are you a dodger? Or do you face it with God's enablement? If you are, look at the struggles as great opportunities to learn from God. That is, if you're a dodger, if you're a ducker. Look at the trials and difficulties as opportunities for God to teach you what he really wants you to learn from him. Because that's what he's doing. And when we don't learn, he has to do it all over again. And uh, as long as we don't get it, he's got to keep doing it. Until we get the lesson, until we get the message, God has to keep doing it over and over again. So let's be prudent and learn the lesson. But then he, he says something else uh, that is better in verse 5. He says, better to be criticized by a wise person than, a, than be praised by a fool. You see, Christian's criticism is only constructive when it instructs, when it corrects, or when it warns, and when we accept them. Absolutely nothing of lasting value is ever accomplished by the empty amusement that fools have a tendency to indulge in. Nothing is ever accomplished. And so this is good advice coming from a wise man who's been there and has done that. And then in verse 6 he says, a fool's laughter is quickly gone, like thorns crackling in a fire. This also, he says, is meaningless. See, a fool's amusement, a fool's amusement may be flashy, and it may be loud, but it is good for nothing. It is as good for nothing as burning thorns that are snapped, crackling, and popping in a fire but it's providing no fuel, just making a whole bunch of noise. But nothing comes out of it. Nothing of value comes out of it. The heat that is generated is too small that it can't even keep the fire going. The fire soon goes out. That's what he's talking about. It's nothing more than noise without effectiveness and foam without bodily fullness. So don't listen to a fool praising you. It doesn't mean anything. 
Sometimes our heads get blown up when we are praised and we don't take into consideration that the praise is coming from a fool, a person who doesn't know anything. But we get carried away with it anyhow. Now because Solomon is a realist, he must also mention some things that are not good and better, even though some people don't see them as an issue. So in the middle of talking about what is good and better, he mentions some things that people often consider to be good, or even better, but they are neither. And so he goes into that in verse 7. He begins by talking about oppression. He says oppression is not good or better. No kind of oppression is good or better. Some people think it is. By oppressor, you notice he said verse 7, extortion turns wise people into fools and bribes corrupt the heart. He's talking about people who use extortion to oppress people. Now by oppressing others, even wise people can become cheating bullies by acting like fools. And you've got believers who are doing that. They lose all sense of stability and self-control as a result of becoming power intoxicated. The little bit of power that they have has gone to their head, blown out of proportion. Once they stoop to bribery, they corrupt their own minds and lose the power to make fear, judgments, and assessments. Extortion is a type of oppression, and it can never be good or better in the long run. No matter how much we try to manipulate it, it will never work. And so Solomon wants us to be mindful that even though some people use oppression and they say, you know, a little oppression will, will get them set in order, it'll, it'll turn them right, it'll get them straight. No. He says it's not good and it's not better in any circumstances. And then he goes on, he says finishing is better than starting. Finishing is better than starting. How many of you can identify with that? Finishing is better than starting. With this statement, he's thinking about the degree of brainstorming and inactivity and toil and discipline that has to go into a new project. You know, you start in a project, especially if you start from scratch, okay? You spend a whole lot of time trying to get yourself on firm, solid footing because you're starting with nothing. You, you're sort of getting, sort of trying to leap off a cliff here. And so, the beginning of a project is overwhelming, to put it another way. Uh, on the other hand, he says, there's a feeling of satisfaction and achievement that comes with the completion of a project. So you see where he's coming from? When he says finishing is better than starting? In other words, you get more satisfaction out of finishing a project than you get out of starting a project. And those of us who are on the jobs and we get challenging jobs, we can identify with that. Because sometimes those jobs, those challenges come and you have to try to figure out, okay, how am I going to deal with this one? How am I going to deal with this? And then another one comes from left field, another one comes from right field. And so you've got to figure out. But there's a big sigh of relief when you finish. You have satisfaction because there is a sense of achievement. But one doesn't need to be, you know, we don't need much insight to realize that this is not uh, this is not a rule of thumb. This rule of thumb doesn't always work. This, is, this, this always, doesn't always apply. While the end of righteous actions is better than the beginning, the end of sorrows is always worse. The end of sin, rather, is always worse. And the end of sin could never be better. The end of sin is always going to be bad. No matter how, we, how much you try to twist it, no matter how much you try to spin it, it's always going to be worse. Remember Job? Job's last days were better than his beginning days. Notice what the Bible says. So Lord blessed Job in the second half of his life with more than in the beginning. So this was the same as what Solomon is saying is true of Job. And of course, Job is only one individual that this statement is true of. We could probably think of others, not only in the scripture, but in our own experiences where this verse is most applicable. God blessed him more in the second half of his life than in the beginning. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 teams of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys. That's probably double or triple of what he had before. So for him, the end was better than the beginning. On the other hand, for the wicked, the end is extremely terrible. So much so that we, we don't even want to think about it. 
And so if you have loved ones and friends who are not saved, you need to remind them of that. The end is extremely terrible. Hebrews. It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Many people don't even think about that today. But we need to remind them of that. We know that. So we need to remind them. If we care about them, if we love them, if we're concerned about them, then we need to remind them. They're not going to read that in the scripture because they're not going to read the Bible. So we need to remind them of that. It's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But then Solomon also says there's something else that is better. Patience is better than pride. Patience is better than pride. How many of you have experienced that? Anybody? You experienced patience. That it turned out to be much better than pride. A uh, uh, prison superintendent asked a prisoner on death row one day, just as he was about to go to death row, what he wanted for his last meal. He said, I'd like a huge piece of watermelon. Superintendent said, you must be joking. This is December. Watermelons have not even been planted yet, let alone harvested. Prisoner said, that's okay. I don't mind waiting. He was patient. More patient. He had more patience than he had the pride. In 1492, Columbus set sail for the Caribbean or for the Orient and ended up in the Caribbean, setting a pattern that continued for over 500 years. Men still won't stop and ask, with directions. Pride. Pride. For the prisoner, for the inmate, it was patience. Columbus, well, Columbus probably didn't have anywhere to stop to ask for directions, right? Eh? But it set a precedence that it continues even today. But with, uh, with these words, with these words, Solomon's words of uh, patience is better than pride, he retains himself on solid ground. In other words, People who are patient in spirit is superior to people who are proud in spirit. In other words, people who are patient in spirit are much better than people who are proud in spirit. Simply because patience is an attractive virtue or character trait. It's an attractive quality. While pride is a sin that is on God's hate list. Remember that list that God has? about the things that he hates, your pride makes that list. So you don't want to get involved in pride because you don't want to be on God's list of hated things. Patience actually prepares people for God's approval. As we're told in Romans 5, chapter 5, verse 4, Paul says, an endurance develops strength of character and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. But pride prepares people for nothing more than destruction. And we see that in Proverbs 16. This pride goes before what? Destruction or the fall. And that fall is big. It's heavy. It's hard. And haughtiness before fall. And so if there's any principle that we can take away from this verse 7 is that, is that hard, it's, it takes hard work, wisdom, self-discipline, and patience to finish whatever we start. You can't get around that. That's what it's going to take. Now, we, I know some people like shortcuts, okay? But shortcuts don't work here, okay? That's what it's going to take. Hard work, wisdom, self-discipline, and patience to finish whatever you start. While someone with a vision can start a large project, having only vision without wisdom will result in nothing more than incomplete projects and empty ambitions. That's what it's going to come to. And there are many people who are wallowing in sorrow today because that's where they end up. But then Solomon goes on, and he mentions something else uh, that has to do with the patience he just mentioned. He says, anger is not, anger is, is, is not good and better either. Notice what he says in verse 9. Control your temper, for anger labels you a fool. Now, I don't know how many of you have been there, but I think I've been there a couple of times. When I allowed my anger to cause me to look like a fool, boy, that, that's a bad feeling. 
That's not a good feeling at all. It makes you feel two inches tall. And it makes you feel like you want the ground to open up and swallow you because of the embarrassment that overwhelms you because you allowed your anger to cause you to make, cause you to look like a fool. See, some people think anger is good or even better because it can more easily get them what they want. Now, I'm sure many of you have probably seen a person go into a, probably a public corporation like BTC or BEC or you know, they didn't get any satisfaction and they figured, boy, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to let them have it. And they figured that anger is the best way to get action. How many of you have seen that? And they get the response that they get made them look like an idiot. Really made them look like a fool. And they would have thought, they, they had second thoughts about, boy, I really shouldn't go in there like that. But that's what he's talking about here. Uh, it labels you a fool. He says, control it. Because if it labels you a fool. Here he's warning about the tendency to fly off the handle. Like we say today. Because it's nothing more than a lack of self-control and it displays character weakness. It shows that you've got a weakness in your character. And you need to fix that. And also, also there's a saying that says, you can determine how big a person is by the size of what it takes to cause them to lose their temper. And we see that happen all the time. And so if there was an application for this one, it would be, don't harbor grudges and bitterness. Do not harbor grudges and bitterness. Now, I know a lot of people like to harbor grudge. They like to, to continue on with the bitterness that they have because that's not, that seems to be the only satisfaction they seem to be able to get for themselves. But when we do that, we expose ourselves as fools, like he says here. Intelligent people don't ruin their lives with such irrational behavior. And we would like to consider ourselves intelligent people, right? I don't think any of us would like to consider ourselves to be fools or people who are not intelligent or people who don't have no sense, as we put it. Well, that's what he's saying. Intelligent people don't ruin their lives by irrational behavior. And being unable to control your temper is irrational behavior. Control it. Now, the fact that he says control it means that it can be controlled. Okay, some people say, oh, I can't help myself. Oh, yes, you can. That's why he says control it. It means that you have the ability to do so. You can do that. And then there's something else embraced by many without very much thoughtful uh, consideration that he mentions here. And that is discontentment is not better, good or better either. Notice what he says in verse 10. Don't long for the good old days. How many of us do that? Well, we hear that one a lot, don't we? Boy, I wish we could think about going back to the good old days, how it used to be. But you know what he says? That is not wise. It's not wise. And yet we do it. See, living in the past is another foolish activity that people indulge in. Constantly harping on the good old days and wishing they could come back because there was, there was so much, it was so much better. It's like living in a world of emptiness. It ain't coming back. Forget it. Them good old days, they're gone forever. You're never going to see them again. So he says, it's a waste of time. It's meaningless. It's like we're living in a world of emptiness. We keep indulging in that. And so the principle for us then is, it's much better to face conditions as they are and live victoriously in spite of them. And we can do that. We can make the best out of a bad situation. That's what he's talking about here. Okay, where there's a will, there's a way. If you've got a strong enough will to do something, you're going to find a way to do it. People do it every day. And that's what he's saying here. Instead of cursing the darkness, it's much better to just simply light a candle. But yet some people spend a world of the time just cursing the darkness when there's so much more they can do to remedy their situation. So, having injected a serious caution of oppression and anger and discontentment, Solomon now goes on to tell us some things about what is even good and better. He resumes by reminding us of the benefit of wisdom's advantage. Notice what he says in verse 11. Wisdom is even better when you have money. Amen? Wisdom is even better. You see, some people talk about having wisdom in this and having wisdom in this. But Solomon says, listen, listen, let's be, let's be sensible, let's be reasonable here. Let's, let's come down to earth. 
Wisdom is even better when you got money. Both are a benefit as you go through life. Okay, sometimes we get on this high spiritual horse and just talk about wisdom. Solomon says, let's get down to it here. This is reality. Solomon's idea here regarding wisdom and an inheritance could be understood in at least three ways. First, wisdom is good with an inheritance because it allows the beneficiary to manage its inheritance carefully. It allows the person to be a good steward of the resources that they have inherited. Okay, so wisdom is good with an inheritance. But he also says, secondly, wisdom is good as an inheritance. Because if given a choice of only one heritage, wisdom would be a superior choice, is what he's saying. Now, I believe he's saying that with a reflection on how God treated him. Remember when he became king and God says, what would you ask for? What, what would you want? If I could give you any, if you could ask anything, what would it be? What did he say? Wisdom. He says, I want wisdom. He says, you know, I can't handle all these, all these people you gave me. How can I manage these people? I need wisdom to manage these people. God says, hey, good answer. Since you gave that answer, tell you what. I'm going to not only give you wisdom, but I'm going to give you some money to go along with it too. And that's why he can make this statement. Wisdom is even better when you have money because he has experienced that. He has been there. He has seen that. And so wisdom is a spirit choice. Money is going to come along as a result of the wisdom. And then thirdly, wisdom is as, is good as an inheritance because it is the source of wealth. When you got wisdom, you can find ways to get wealth. That's what he's saying. It's also an advantage under the sun to those who are on earth. In other words, it's applicable for us in the here and now. It's not relegated to Solomon's times in which he's writing. It's applicable to us right now. We can apply this wisdom to work for us in the same way that he mentions here. And then uh, he says in verse 12, Wisdom and money can get you almost anything. Now notice how he combines the two here. Okay, first he says it's better have wisdom and money, and then he further elaborates on it and telling us why it's good to have wisdom along with money. He says wisdom and money can get you almost anything, but only wisdom can save your life. You see that? Wisdom is like money to the extent that both can give protection and security. You can get that, both of them, with wisdom. Because it's like money. With money, there is assurance against physical and financial losses. That's with money. While wisdom provides added protection from moral and spiritual harm. Protection from moral and spiritual harm. That's why wisdom is so important. See, a lot of people have, have money, but they don't have the wisdom to enable them to manage that money correctly. We had all those horror stories about people who inherited so much money and they lost it in no time at all. Not to mention those folks who win lotteries and their lives are ruined but just by winning the money because they didn't have the wisdom to go along with it. So the two go together. Wisdom is not just superior because it preserves material possessions but because it also preserves the lives of those who possess it. It's a preservation of life for those who have it. And so, in conclusion, the endless superiority of wisdom will remain obvious to us as long as we remember that Christ is the wisdom of God. Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God. You got Jesus? Then you don't have a problem. You won't have a problem being able to harness the wisdom of God. And whatever you find, as a result of having Christ, will always be good and better. One verse that reminds us of that is, in him lie all the hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You want the hidden knowledge? You want the hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge? It's in Christ. That's where you find it. Many people don't want to have anything to do with Christ. Because they don't see what God is saying here. But that's where the treasures are. 
of wisdom and knowledge in Christ. And so God has given us an idea of what is good and what is better. It's up to us to determine how we're going to use that knowledge that he's given us. Because as I told you, it's up to now you. What are you going to do with it? How are you going to apply it? Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you again for your wisdom, your knowledge. We thank you, Father, for how you have equipped us to be all that we have the capacity to be and that all that uh, you have is ours because we are heirs of all that Jesus Christ has. And so, Father, we thank you for this evening for reminding us of some things that we already know. Reminders are good. As we were mindful of this morning when we remember the Lord. And so we pray, Lord, that we may take these reminders and allow them to affect our lives as we go through the course of this coming week. As a result of your word never returning to you void, we know, Lord, that we're going to be challenged by some of the very things that we heard here this evening. And so we ask, O oh Father, that you will enable us to embrace ourselves and to be able to act and respond accordingly so that you would get the glory out of this evening and that it would have proven not to be a fruitless exercise, but one that is rewarding and rich because we would have benefited from what you have instructed, encouraged, and guided us with. Bless us now with your blessed benediction, Father. As we go to our homes and our places of abode, we pray, Father, for your continued safekeeping and protection. For this we ask in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. The Lord bless you as you go.